the bed where lay his head, and now my cheeks are burning red. The son of a gun is nothing but a tailor. I used to flirt until it hurt while he stood there in his undershirt. The son of a gun is nothing but a tailor. Hello, and welcome to Season 4 of How Would Lubitsch Do It? A podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's 1932, and Leah Jacobs joins us to discuss Ruben McMullian's Love Me Tonight, as well as film rhythm in early sound cinema. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, a link to our Discord, or just to say hi. Hello, everyone. We're here with Leah Jacobs. You've come highly recommended, I'll say, from numerous other guests. People keep saying to me, you got to get Leah Jacobs on. One of your books called Film Rhythm After Sound has been a touchstone for this whole season, actually. I reached out to you a few weeks ago now, and you basically told me, go read my book. And I did. And I've gotten many great recommendations for books over the course of this podcast. And this was one of the best recommendations. Your book breaks down the impact the advent of sync sound or widespread use of sync sound, I should say, had on the rhythm of films, how films are edited, the way dialogue is portrayed, and the way music plays into that. So I'm going to ask you, who are you and what do you do? Thank you very much. I taught film history and aesthetics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison for many years. I'm retired now. I still do research. Certainly the research I did for my book on film rhythm would never have been possible without both the great technical facilities and the great colleagues I had studying film sound at Madison. My career has been kind of divided between doing industry history, mainly of Hollywood studio system, and doing film analysis. So the Film Rhythm book is one of my analysis books. I have two asterisks for all our listeners here. The first is that today we're going to be referring to a lot of specific cases. It's a case study episode where we're going to be taking specific scenes from Love Me Tonight, but also Monte Carlo and a Frank Borzaki film called Song of My Heart. And if you want to watch along with those clips or pause the podcast and watch those, they will be on the show notes for this episode, which will be published alongside it. And my second asterisk is that this is an episode where I have to throw my hands up personally and go, I am outside my area of expertise. If someone wants to ask me about film lighting, I can talk someone's head off. Leah, you're here as an expert in this subject, which is this intersection of film and musical theory and rhythmic theory that I am, frankly, a rank, like two steps below amateur on. I'm a novice when it comes to anything related to music theory. So thank you so much for coming on and uh, educating me and therefore our audience on this. You're welcome. So the first tranche of subjects we might want to cover is the advent. You know, it's the late 20s, right? 27 to 30 is when the film industry in Hollywood transition to synchronized sound as the mainstream way to make movies. I always like to separate these out where sound didn't get like magically invented in 1928. (laughs) If anyone wants to hear about why sound was so widespread, I refer you to our episodes with Peter Lapuza and Jennifer Flieger on the matter. But it's here. And I think we should start by defining our terms because we have a few different ways we can incorporate sound into films. We have direct recording, sync to playback recording, and Those two things are very different ways that we essentially bring our sounds into movies. I think, Leah, you'd probably be much better at defining these two things. What is direct sound recording and what is sync to playback recording in the context of, in this case, we're talking about musicals? Okay, so I'm going to expand the number of options, if I may. Please. 
So the first thing is obviously silent film, as you know, is never silent. So you could think about sound as something that the earliest sound accompaniment is done live while the film is projected. And that can be done in various ways. You can have a score that was written and distributed with the film so that the musicians in the theater are playing a pre-prepared score, but you can also have improvised scores. You can have jazz musicians can improvise to a score, just like they can improvise music. Mm. So there's ranges of ways of matching up music and a movie within the framework of live performance. And that's what happened till 1928. And it happened theater by theater. What you hear on Broadway would be a big, well-trained orchestra that would have a pre-planned score, but you might just have a pianist improvising in a small town in the Midwest. And then when sound came in, there were various compromises. The easiest way to link up the music and effects without dialogue, just music and effects with a film is called just a music and effects track and that is post-synchronized. So the film was all done, and instead of having live musical accompaniment, you can record it, and then you can marry the sound and image. So you have music, you have effects, they're loosely synchronized with what's going on in the screen, but you don't have people speaking. The point is that when you have people speaking, you need a very, very close match Mm -hmm. between the movement of the lips and the sound. Otherwise, it looks ridiculous. We are very astute at hearing voices and watching lips move and matching those up. People could, in silent cinema, could read lips. That's how good we are. So if the lips are out of sync with the actual sound of the phonemes that people are speaking, it looks funny. Otherwise, you get like uh, mid-century Italian movies. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, in Europe, they never cared about it so much, actually. But in Hollywood, it was considered very, very bad not to have the lips precisely match. And this was actually a problem for animators, too. They had to figure out how to do that before they actually had dialogue in cartoons. And you had to figure out, you know, how it would look when it talked up, (laughs) that kind of stuff. So anyway... That's where direct sound comes in. When people wanted to have a very precise sync between lines of dialogue and lip movements, they would directly record. So you would have actors saying their lines and they would have multiple cameras initially. And one would take the sound and one would have images of the people talking. Okay, so that's direct recording. But you don't have to do that all the time, especially with trained singers. So if you record a song and then play it back, a singer can lip sync to it, right? Well, we all can, right? Mm. We've all done this at parties and stuff. So that's sunk to playback, basically. Sunk is the past tense of sync up, you know, sunk to playback. And lots of things were done that way, especially music. Because you could do that. You could have a musical number, which was all pre-recorded and then sunk. So there's direct sound. There's post-syncing, which is you can add the sound in after the image is taken. And then there's sync to playback, where you record the music and then you record the image. 
Mm. Does that make sense? Yes. There's three different ways to deal with the temporal displacement, right? Yeah. For example, in certain musicals of this era, they would pre-record all the songs and then on set, they would basically milli vanilli it. They would lip sync or you would have a microphone above them live. And, you know, there's this wonderful image that I'm going to include in the show notes if I can, taken from behind the scenes of Love Me Tonight in your book, where you can see Maurice Chevalier standing on a stage and he's beautifully lit and he's surrounded by an orchestra. So that orchestra is playing live and he's being recorded live. So we're really seeing kind of a live concert that doesn't acknowledge its status as a concert. And then the third way is you record and then you maybe have like a a piano player on the set for tempo and melody, and then you dub in a later recorded orchestra. Am I getting it correct? Yes. And the reason that they would go to the trouble of having the orchestra there is about a different thing. It's not recording, but re-recording. So we're so used to this. You can record a sound and then combine it with another sound. It's very easy to do digitally, but you could even do it on magnetic tape. But for the early years of sound, that was not a possibility. For example, if you think of radio as one of the first recorded sound media, radio was done live. Mm. All of the sound effects were done as the people were speaking the lines in radio plays, for example. There was no post-manipulation of the sound of the radio voice. And that's because you couldn't re-record a sound without loss of quality. Mm-hmm. Every time you re-record, especially with audio tape or optical sound, you lose quality. You get more surface noise introduced into the recording every time you re-record. And, you know, digital sound is lossless. I mean, you could reproduce that, I don't know, infinitely, but a lot of times with minimal, if any, loss of quality, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's just a series of digital bits that can be replicated endlessly. But analog sound isn't like that. And optical sound is certainly not like that. So they didn't want to re-record dialogue because the sound would be terrible. If you have an actor singing and then you add in the sound of the orchestra later, you're going to re-record the sound of the voice. And so you'd have to hear Maurice Chevalier sound worse than the orchestra mm-hmm. if the orchestra is the last recorded. So we don't have the kind of freedom to combine sounds that we have later. I would say after 1935, there's an important film called A Thousand Men and a Girl with Deanna Durbin and the Philadelphia. Philadelphia Symphony Orchestra. Mm-hmm. And there was a huge hullabaloo in the mid 40s because they recorded her on the West Coast and she was singing with the orchestra, which was recorded in Philadelphia. And now we wouldn't think that's weird. But at 1934, whenever they did it, 34, 35, it was considered so weird and spectacular that they could do this. Mm-hmm. So you have to kind of cast your mind back to an older technology, which is not to say it was a worse technology necessarily. The films are fabulous, but it is to say that they were made very differently than we make films now. And so you've got to be aware of what they were working with. This obviously had a huge impact on the rhythm of these movies, you know, and this is the main subject of your book, the incorporation of dialogue, but also the technical limitations of recording that dialogue. How did all this combination, this soup of things, the fact that you have to make room for dialogue instead of having shot, intertitle, shot, intertitle, and the fact that you had to stage scenes in a certain way, 
I leave it to you to enter this any way you want, and then we can wind our way through it. <laughs> the very earliest sound films, that is from the earliest sound shorts through to about 1931, they were shot with what was called a multiple camera system. It's optical sound. I'm going to simplify this. There were other sound systems. So let's just talk about optical sound because that's mm -hmm. the system that won. <laughs> so there's a camera that's taking the sound. And then there's a two or three other cameras. It's called multiple camera studio broadcast TV was shot. And they're taking the picture. And everything is taken at the same time for that precious synchronization. It's to make sure that whatever shot of the actor they ultimately choose to show, that shot the lips sync up with the sound record, okay? And they also had to limit camera noise. So the cameras are encased in a booth so that the noise doesn't go into the room. So that only sounds they're getting are the sounds they want to pick up. And so you can imagine it's like a little hut. Mm -hmm. They used to call it an ice box because it was so hot in those little rooms for the cameramen. And they're all recording away. And that meant it was really, really hard to have new camera setups. That's why they were using a multiple camera system, because they couldn't very easily move this little hut around 35 degrees around to the other side of the actor to get a better angle or something. So the close-ups and the long shots were all taken at the same time that the sound was recorded. And then the images were cut to that sound record, mm. which itself was minimally cut because... In the very earliest time, it was hard to cut that optical record. And when you pasted it back together, there was a bloop, like a click where you made the join physically. So they hadn't figured out how to silence the cuts yet. That helps to explain why the films of the period are very slow paced, because actors are just stuck in this one position. Regardless of how fast you cut from one camera to the other, it's almost... Like you have to play it back in real time then, right? Not even the song, but the dialogue scene lasts as long as it lasted on the day, I guess. Right. It was very hard to cut. Wow. And there were silences between lines because they were worried about audibility, which again was a huge issue given the recording, but also the playback apparatus. I mean, loudspeakers, today we would think of them as awful. I mean, at the time they were miraculous. So they were very concerned about audibility. So you have these gaps between lines, which nowadays we just snip out. If there are such and the editor doesn't want them there or they think the actor didn't want them there, they cut them out. I mean, they might decide to leave them for effect because pauses are part of a performance, but these were not part of a performance. These were people thinking, I better pause, let that word finish before I start the next one. Well, you can imagine what that was like. No kidding. Wow. When watching the film, I mean, Song of My Heart, which is one of the clips you use in the book, and again, show notes, everyone, is a great example of this. It's a film by Frank Borsegi shot twice. The Wikipedia claims it was also shot in 70 mil, and I've seen nothing to back that up. But it was shot at least twice. And we have two versions here, one that's silent, one that has synchronized sound. It's direct recorded. The actors are speaking. There's a microphone off frame. They're being recorded. And the rhythm between the two scenes is very different. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? First of all, I should say, Fox did come out with a wide film system called Grander. It was 70 millimeter. It didn't take off at the time, but it was part of a plan to sell Fox films as the best quality and huh. best visual quality. 
So this one's shot with two different negative stocks. Oh, wow. I don't know if it was shot simultaneously with both of them or in sequence. That's so many versions. <laughs> yeah. The music and effects version is from the same footage. So it was always shot for sound mm. because not all theaters were wired for sound at the time. And in Europe, especially, right? Different countries converted, their film industries converted and their theaters converted at different times. I mean, by the end of the 20s, the big U.S. theaters were wired for sound, but not all of the small theaters. So there's a period where they were producing things with music and effects tracks or no sound for smaller theaters and then with sync sounds for other theaters. So, but that was all done after the footage was taken. Uh. So there's a sync sound version of Sound of My Heart and there's a music and effects version, which was compiled from this same footage. So it is still kind of clunky if you compare Sound of My Heart to earlier Verzaghi films that were shot silent. It's still clunky mm -hmm. because it was shot multiple camera. They might have close-ups and long shots, but they don't have the capacity to get the camera in close enough for shot reverse shot, which was already a convention of silent filmmaking. People knew how to move the camera in close and get nice angles when there's a silent conversation scene. But they don't have that for a song in my heart. But what they can do is just they cut it really differently because they could once they didn't have to worry about that soundtrack. They could put in titles and they didn't have to hold on the actors for them to finish the lines. So they are stuck with that. So the main idea is they can cut away. They can cut around a door when someone leaves a room. They don't have to just hold on the one actor that's still talking. And that makes so much difference. You can see how film rhythm is really editing rhythm at some fundamental level even though there are all these other rhythmic elements that kind of line up with it. And what happens is they lose that capacity to these very small cuts that we might not even notice when we're watching really affect the rhythm of the film. So in this scene that hopefully you'll see from Song of My Heart. And this is your cue, dear listener, to refer to the show notes where you'll find clip one. There's this, you know, big dramatic exit where... A young woman walks out of her aunt's house, never to return. So the act of her walking out of the house is really important. It's really important to cut outside with her. <laughs> but because of the way the lines were working, they couldn't do that for the sync sound version. But they did it for the music and effects version. And it looks a million times better, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. And the freedom of cutting between angles. Yeah. There's a close-up of Emily Fitzroy, the older actress on the screen right in the second scene, in the silent version of the second half of this clip that does not exist in the sound version. And maybe it's taken from a different part of the scene temporarily. Maybe it's just a camera position they didn't use in the sound version. But little things like that and the creation of a more kind of coherent shot reverse shot framework, plus the intertitles add to this sense of a rhythm that feels in sync with the kind of swooning nature of the music, right? The music is this large romantic score. And I mean, romantic in the poetic sense, not in the amorous sense, that really kind of underlines the emotions that are going on in the subtext better than I think even the sound version. 
it all kind of adds up to this a scene that, I mean, it's longer, actually, because the intertitles take up so much darn time, but it feels actually quicker and it feels more fluid. Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, this is what people were saying at the time, because we have no experience of intertitles growing up or anything. We think they were clunky, but people at the time thought spoken dialogue was so clumsy <laughs> compared to these elegant elliptical intertitles, which just suggest a part of the conversation and then they go away and you can cut around. The intertitles even help hide cuts. The first time I watched the silent part of the clip, I actually didn't notice until I read the passage in your book and then watched the scene again that we actually moved to a different camera position after the intertitle, why is Aunt Elizabeth sending you away? You? It's a slightly closer angle. I mean, it goes from a wide to a medium, but I actually didn't notice. I was like, wow, it never occurred to me that you could use an intertitle to hide a cut like that. <laughs> yeah. It's fascinating. This is a 1930 film like Monte Carlo. And two years later comes Love Me Tonight. And one thing I'd like to touch on is what changed in those two years that allowed for Love Me Tonight to get made when it patently could not have been made in 29 or 30, could it have? No. The main thing is that Love Me Tonight is not shot with multiple cameras. Hmm. Monte Carlo is. I mean, Lubitsch hated multiple camera shooting and he found lots of ways around it. So... It's a compromise. And a lot of the things that Lubitsch did that he had to do in Monte Carlo because he was faced with the problem of multiple camera shooting or some alternative. By the time of Love Me Tonight, Mamoulian is doing them because he wants to do them, because he chooses to do them. Mm. So if he's choosing to do direct sound, it's because he wants it. And if he's choosing to do sync to playback, it's because he wants to do it. Whereas for Lubitsch, sync to playback was a way of getting around the problems of multiple camera shooting, if that makes sense. There's definitely an evolution that is very palpable from Love Parade to Monte Carlo to The Smiling Lieutenant to One Hour With You. And then all those, you know, 1932 films, I mean, Trouble in Paradise and then Love Me Tonight, which I should specify here because people might be asking, why the hell are we doing Love Me Tonight? That's not a Lubitsch movie. <laughs> it's a Ruben McMillian film that at one point was slated for Lubitsch and he couldn't do it because of One Hour With You. He wasn't expecting to direct that film. George Cukor ruffled some feathers. You can listen to the One Hour With You episode about that with Matt Severson. And so he could not end up doing Love Me Tonight. So this is a strange case of a slightly Lubitsch film that Lubitsch didn't end up directing and ended up taking a very different form in Ruben's hands. <laughs> He's a very different director. Jumping forward to Lubitsch's last musical, The Merry Widow, which we're going to cover later, that feels like a huge leap. It's in a different universe. Yeah. It's also MGM. But it's a completely different world of sound filmmaking at that point. Yeah, because that is 34. I'm pretty sure they're actually re-recording. Re-recording is the greatest mm -hmm. because you get all the benefits of not only editing sound, but placing sounds and mixing to balance music and voice, for example. I mean, imagine mm -hmm. that you can't do that <laughs> or you're doing it live on the fly because you can't tamper with the original sound record. So yeah, it's a different sound world. And you also have to remember, because we live in a world of DVDs or I do or streaming or something, we're not necessarily hearing the original sound, mm -mm. which is a problem if you're doing research in these areas because the sound gets improved by digital means and you don't realize 
what the actual sonic quality of the print was unless you can get an original print. And even then you have to imagine what the original loudspeakers were like. Oh my gosh. Yeah. On our old podcast, which is called Film Formally, we did a whole episode on sound revisionism <laughs> in home video releases. And it's a nightmare, even if there isn't, for example, all the Freed Unit musicals are only available in quote unquote 5.1. I'm doing big air quotes versions, right? Where they just like throw in the stems for the songs and it's a disaster. And then one film that we just recently covered, which is Jewel Robbery, it's very clear that they applied a heavy denoising to the digital version. Yeah. So they haven't remixed it, but every time a character stops talking, the film is dead silent. There's no tape hiss, nothing. No optical track hiss. And it's very distracting and everyone sounds a little AI generated. <laughs> and, and I mean, I'm in Vancouver and we don't have a film archive to speak of. So it's hard for me to actually like listen to the unmitigated versions of these sometimes, which is a real shame. Yeah, that's right. But your sense that Mary Widow is very different, I think would be stronger if we could hear the actual tracks from Monte Carlo mm-hmm. and even for Love Me Tonight. I have heard it because UCLA has an original print, but it's a very long time ago. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure I remember because since watched it many times on video with headphones, which again, it brings out all kinds of things on the track, which is cool. But some things would have been inaudible, really. Oh, yeah. That now we can hear. My coping mechanism is I have a sound system that I only turn on the center speaker <laughs> when I'm watching <laughs> monofilms. I will only have the one speaker underneath the TV going. <laughs> it often actually helps the mix, even though it's lower fidelity in quotes, because the mix was designed to come out from behind the screen and bounce around the room, right? Yeah, absolutely. But I do think that if you're thinking about innovation, Lubitsch's film is incredibly innovative, partly because he hated the restrictions of multiple camera shooting, whereas Mamalian could already take it for granted that he didn't have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had dealt with it before. It's not like he hadn't shot multiple camera because he'd been making sound films for a while. But Lubitsch does such cool things in Monte Carlo to get away from having to have just this boring four cameras lined up. Jeanette McDonald singing in front of them, and then you cut between the one shot and another. He uses a lot of wild sound, which is shots of the trains or of the surrounding elements where you can add the sound in post. This might be a good time to loop in the way that he uses music to pace dialogue. A lot of your writing on Monte Carlo deals with the way that, for example, there's a dialogue scene, which can be found in the show notes from the film where music is used as a way of interplaying with the dialogue. In fact, in your book, you lay out a few ways in which music can interact with dialogue. For example, it can be underscore where there's a scene in Love Me Tonight where there is a kind of waltz just playing in the background. It's essentially sonic wallpaper. And then you have scenes where the music comes to the fore and it interacts with sung dialogue. In this case, we might call that a song. (laughs) But then in Monte Carlo, there are scenes where music is doing something in between, such as in that first conversation scene, which is listed here as clip two. What's going on here with the music? Because this is where I'll say that I've exhausted my vocabulary. I do not have the words to describe what exactly happens when, in this case, Jeanette McDonald is discussing matters with her maid. But the callus wanted to play tonight. Oh, yes. That's what we wanted to do. But you got over there, so of course that made it impossible for us to stay. Well, we had to do something. So we went out and looked around. You've noticed 
no idea how beautiful Monte Carlo is. The park, simply divine. And the promenade, like a walk in the clouds. And as far as you could see, not a soul. And so we sat down close. Very close. <laughs> it takes bits of the music from previous scenes and uses it out of order. Pieces of songs are not in the same order that they appear in the actual song itself. Like you, you go to the sixth and seventh measure, then a little bit later you hear the first and second measures. And they're used as underscore, but they're more important than underscore because they suggest this dreamy date that Jeanette McDonald is describing to her maid. Mm -hmm. And her maid's also kind of sweet on the sky. So her maid's kind of upset about this. But the emotions that are circulating are suggested by the music. So it has dramatic import in the way that modern underscoring would. Mm. You know, if we hear music under a dialogue scene, unless it's just meant to be, you know, like a random noise or music in a restaurant. Like a diegetic orchestra or something. Yeah, it's going to be there. You know, even just if it's three chords, the harmony has been planned to relate to what's being said. But Lubitsch is working at a time when you have a song or you have maybe just music playing under the dialogue. But this is somewhere between. Mm. And I guess that's what I'm interested in and why there's two examples is in the first case, the music is still very much setting the pace for the dialogue. I think that conversation was done with the musicians there because it's 1930. And I think that the actress, Jeanette McDonald's, is timing her lines partly in relation to the music. I mean, she's listening to the musicians and the musicians are listening to her. It's kind of like a performance situation, even though it's not a song. So it's almost like a patter piece? Yeah, but she's not actually playing off the rhythm of the music. Mm-mm like a patter song. And there's lots of good patter songs in Love Me Tonight. But the musical rhythm is spoken, but not sung. Mm. But it's still complete match. This is not complete match. No. It's not rhythmically a match, but emotionally it's a match. And that contrasts, interestingly, with the scene in Trouble in Paradise, in which Kay Francis and Herbert Marshall have their little flirtatious meeting where she's trying to invite herself into his bedroom. Good night. Good night. Good night. Goodbye. And the music plays in some ways a similar role. It underscores the subtext, but its deployment is a bit different in that. What had changed for Lubitsch? By then, the rhythm is set by the actress' performance of the lines. And the music fills in the gaps in a kind of suggestive way. Because mm. he's got these very long gaps, which are very suggestive. There's all these things that are not being said especially if you realize that Herbert Marshall has got motives that she doesn't know about. So it's kind of got all these subtexts. He inserts the music to suggest those subtexts, but 
nonetheless, the actual rhythm of the scene, the timing of the lines and the timing of the silences is done by the actors. Mm. And the music's added in later. I mean, technically, they could do that by that point. So it's a very different feel. And that's, in a way, what my book is trying to talk about is how did people, directors and actors who are completely unused to dealing with spoken dialogue, how did they control its rhythm? How did they get technically to a point where they could control its rhythm? But also, how did they figure out how to time their speech, their movements, and impose the music that was being added to create a rhythmic whole. And you can't imagine a different timing, like Lubitsch's timing of that scene in Trouble in Paradise, which is, to my mind, one of the best movies a Hollywood cinema has ever produced. Mm -hmm. It's just perfect in terms of its timing. But it's not the music that's driving it. It's not the technology that's driving it. It's Lubitsch and the actors figuring out to the millisecond when they're going to turn, when they're going to pause, when they're going to start to speak. And I think it was also Lubitsch's unusual habit for studio directors of his era in editing his own movies or at least supervising the edit, even if he wasn't holding the scissors. <laughs> Every single edit is clearly his. There's so many commonalities in his sound and his Berlin and his Hollywood silent work. I think that's part of why he must have taken the sound so well, because he had such a good rhythmic sense and he knew why rhythm works, not just shoot the footage and hand it off to someone and then say goodbye. Yeah, I'm sure you've talked about this, but he was a very accomplished musician. And his daughter, Nicola, remembers going to sleep to the sounds of him playing piano downstairs. Mm -hmm. He was very musically versed. But the great thing about Lubitsch is he got that that fundamental rhythm for a movie has to be the movie, not the music itself. Even though he made all these musicals where musical rhythm is important, he always managed to integrate that within a larger structure. So the opening of Monte Carlo, which is this wedding that doesn't happen, mm -hmm. is terrific in this way, I think, because it has a musical piece, a kind of mock musical piece that is celebrating this wedding that's a farce. <laughs> and so it's very this ponderous, pretentious musical rhythm and choral piece. But the editing is very fast. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the filmic rhythm is born of that contrast. It's not just the musical rhythm. So even in 1930, he's thinking in terms of the film rhythm as its own thing. Yeah, he's counterpointing the rhythm and the bombast of the music with the lightness of tone of all the other formal elements. Yes, yes, exactly. Momolian, I think, is much more interested, I think, in the qualities of movement in relation to the music. So there's a very, very funny stag hunt, which, among other things, of course, ends with the hero convincing these aristocrats not to kill the stag. But <laughs> so it's funny at lots of levels, but musically and rhythmically, it's funny because you cut back and forth between what I call the horse and dog music. So the hunting music with horns and very clippity-clop, clippity-clop kind of rhythm. Yeah. 
And the stag music is very graceful. It's on a piccolo. And you're cutting back and forth between those. So he's suiting the quality of movement to the music. And so there's stag-like movement. And then there's dog and pony music. And I think that's something he's playing with a lot in the movie as a whole. For those in the audience who haven't seen it, Love Me Tonight features prominently a large mansion, a palace. And the film kind of plays off the class differences between those within the palace and those without. And in this case, we have three different entrances by three different characters. And the first two of which, so you have Charles Ruggles, Jeanette McDonald, Maurice Chevalier. And I refer to everyone by actors' names now because my mind cannot comprehend all the characters involved that Maurice has played. And all three of them are different stations, right? You have Charles Ruggles, who is an aristocrat. You have Jeanette McDonald, who is an even more highly stationed aristocrat. And then you have Maurice Chevalier, who is a tailor. <laughs> the son of a gun is nothing but a tailor. And they all enter the palace at different times in the film, but it's portrayed very differently. So one of the important points about the Wesley Ruggles character, who is so brilliant, is that he's an aristocrat with no money, mm -hmm. which makes him different from the Jeanette McDonald. He's an indigent spendthrift aristocrat. <laughs> it's actually an archetype in Lubitsch movies. There's so many of those, like the pauper princes that started with the oyster princess, but continues. <laughs> right, right, right. Whereas Maurice Chevalier is this virile kind of working class guy flirting with lots of women and comes to get his money from Wesley Ruggles who's gone to the palace to get the money from his rich relatives. So the palace is hilarious because it's these aristocrats playing bridge mm -hmm. and the servants are walking around serving tea. And it's like a funeral march. It's like very slow march tempo as they walk slowly around. And I don't know, I think the film is slightly slowed up actually. As they walk around delivering tea and this aristocratic woman takes her lorgnette to wake up her bridge partner. So it's very funny. And then Wesley Ruggles comes, he's taken a taxi cab from Paris to Monte Carlo. So you can imagine what a spendthrift he is because we know he has no money. <laughs> and he comes with this jazzy swing tune and he skips out of the cab, skips up the steps and then skips down this palatial hallway with chandeliers and everything and comes to a stop in front of his cousin. And she's just sitting there asleep at the bottom of the stairs. So <laughs> it's like this slow movie world and this hip guy comes in. This is clip three in the show notes. And then the next one is Jeanette McDonald, who is an aristocrat who lives in the castle, very virtuous, very elegant. And she has already met Maurice Chevalier on the road because she had a problem with her carriage. And he's come on to her and she's insulted. So she's mad and indignant. And somehow there's a very upbeat tune, which is the tune that Maurice Chevalier sang to her when he made up to her. Mimi. Mimi. Mimi, you funny little good for nothing, Mimi, am I the guy? And so that's how she arrives at the castle with this upbeat version of Mimi, which has all the force of her indignation.
the energy of his desire. And then she skips into the castle. And then the same tune is repeated at slower and slower tempi until she faints at the sight of the very slow-moving aristocrat she's supposed to marry. So that's the second entrance. And then the third entrance is Maurice, who's come to get his money. And so it starts with this French revolutionary air, which is very rhythmic. It's not necessarily fast, but it's martial mm. because he needs to get his money. And that's what he's come for. You know. Then he opens the door to the castle, and then to kind of suggest the somnolent atmosphere of the castle, there's nobody there. It's like there's no movement, but there's just eight bars of this minuet play. So it's like the contrast between the two, like the upper class, elegant, but kind of empty space. And there's comically wide shots, too, of these huge doors that are just <laughs> overbearing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And then this motive starts, which is a musical jazzy motive, which is by Rogers, I assume. But what we can tell from putting a metronome against the movement and the music is that he goes upstairs looking for somebody mm -hmm. and goes progressively higher. And with each story, the music gets faster. And it gets faster in multiple ways that I try and detail in my book is kind of technical, but it's not just the actual beats per second we're talking about, but how many eighth notes, how they're orchestrated. There's multiple ways in which this acceleration happens. And it also happens in the editing because we get faster and faster, shorter and shorter shots as he goes up the stairs until he gets to the top and there's still nobody. So it's like he is associated, his movement, the quality of his movement is the fastest. Everyone else is asleep on the stairs and he's running up them. He's the only one who's maybe virile enough to withstand <laughs> the overpowering weight of aristocracy and capital, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. That comparison says so much about what Mamoulian has done with the film. It seems to me that he's doing less subtle counterpointing than Lubitsch throughout the film and more just the whole film's in the matrix key. I always diary every time I watch a movie. Last time I watched Love Me Tonight was a week ago. And I wrote that Lubitsch is at his best, a showman who slyly winks at you while doing the most elegant soft shoe you ever saw. While Mamoulian is a madcap vaudevillian who does a succession of increasingly improbable backflips while shooting fireworks out of his sleeves. What I'm trying to get at there is that Mamoulian seems to be very direct in how he uses things like music, sound, and rhythm, where it's not about undercutting your expectations, or in the case of Day of Days, that first scene from Monte Carlo with Lubitsch, kind of subtly contrasting two formal things. It's blowing you away with just the Looney Tunes-ness of it all, free Looney Tunes. And it really feels informed by especially cartoons, which there is a chapter in your book on this, how cartoons informed films like Love Me Tonight, and especially how cartoons kind of push the way forward for this kind of close synchronization. Yeah. You know, they call it Mickey Mousing. There's a lot of different ways people think about Mickey Mousing. The most common usage of the term is that there's 
some way in which the music sonically imitates the action. So if someone falls downstairs, you could have a slide whistle and descending like, (laughs) so there's a pitch, the change of pitch matches the action of falling downstairs. But what is really amazing and what was Disney's innovation right at the beginning of the sound period was to think about how to match, technically, how to match the action of the characters with the music of the score. And he almost, not the very first, because the very first are more like silent film scores or bits and pieces of like Turkey and the Straw and familiar songs that are woven together. Mm. But very early, he had actual through composed music for his cartoon shorts. And that music was the very first thing that got written. The music and the gags would get worked out. And the director's rooms, they were called, was a room with a piano in it where the director and the composer could work out the timings and the gags. And then they would come up with a score and then the animators would animate to the score. Mm. So as you can imagine, if Mickey has to move across a room, they tell the animator, okay, you have so many seconds. And then over that course of those seconds, there would be, say, 12 beats. And then they'd say, okay, well, how many frames per beat? That would be the animator's choice. Do we want to do it pretty fast, like four frames a beat? Or do we want to do it pretty slow, like 12 frames a beat or somewhere in between? And then they would plan the animation so the beat would be divided into these frames. So when you think about rhythm and animation, what you want to know are the frame rates. A good example is the early Popeye cartoons, which always start pretty slow, like 12 frames a beat. And then by the time he gets to the fight with Pluto, he has a spinach. It goes down to really fast rates, like (laughs) six frames a beat or four frames a beat. The movement is really fast at that point. And if you watch a Popeye cartoon, you can feel this. If you have a good copy on video, you can actually count frames, which is what I spent a lot of time doing in my book. (laughs) And I have to say, it was a kind of a revelation to me because I didn't know that. I mean, I knew that, you know, there were frames for beat. Okay. But then when I actually started marking out the beats in the cartoons and they counting frames, how subtle it was. Mm. Mickey could be walking. There'd be a step cycle for his feet. And that would be six frames. Okay, so he's walking, there'd be six frames, and then the foot hit. Six frames, and then the other foot. But his head might be moving on a cycle of four. So he might be bobbing his head faster than his feet are working. You could see how it's like insanely sunk. I mean, it's not just that they're sinking one action. Everything is working on 12s. No, (laughs) there's parts of him that are moving faster. Pluto's ears could be moving faster than his feet. It gets really crazy. And Pluto can be moving faster than Mickey because they're animating all these separately, you know? Then they're combining the cells. So it was insane. It was insane very early. That gave them the capacity to do a little bit what Mamoulian's trying to do when we have the light stag leaps, you know? Mm -hmm. They could plan to do that. Like, okay, we're going to have this little mouse running and he's going to jump jump, jump, and that's going to be on twos. And then there's big old cat coming after him and he's going to be on twelves, you know, and they could figure this out. Quite amazing. It's very interesting to me because of the technical limitations of the time. 
live action films were not easily able to do this or early on at all able to do this. And then because cartoons of the technical process of those, they were almost immediately, as soon as sync sound was available, able to do this frame perfect syncing, this incredibly polyrhythmic syncing. And then it took, you know, slowly live action films seem to catch up. Love Me Tonight is probably the earliest example I've seen where this is done so well. It's imperfect. Like in your book, you lay out the way in which the opening scene, you know, Paris in the morning, when the rhythm of the diegetic sounds does not match the rhythm of the music for a little while. But then you have stuff like the ending, where the way the music plays off with Jeanette racing on the horse in undercranked fast motion with the live action scenes and the dialogue, it feels like I'm watching a Roadrunner cartoon. It is very much that. The thing is, even for Love Me Tonight, they didn't have click tracks. Mm -hmm. Click tracks, they were applied to live action filmmaking after cartoons and pretty late in the 30s. So if you think about it, that doesn't mean there isn't a sync, but it's a looser sync. Now, some people prefer that. I mean, there are musicians that can't stand click tracks even today because bands use them too, you know, now. Just to define the term, a click track is just a metronomic tone that sets your tempo, right? The classic example is a drummer on the stage will have a headphone on that'll go click, 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 and then they'll be able to play around that. Yeah. You could do that, but a lot of people hate this. And actually, silent film accompanists hate it too. Mm. They think sound film is too mechanical sounding. They like the fact that somebody's playing and they're half a second off, or they let a note linger, the resonance of a note linger before they start the next one. That kind of stuff is part of being a musician, but that's not how cartoons were done. <laughs> no. It was a different kind of sense of rhythm and how you would work. And is there any evidence that Mamoulian would have been directly referencing cartoons as an inspiration or a point of artistic reference for this film? I can't believe he wasn't interested in them because he was interested in combining movement and music from very early. He directed the play version of Porky and Bess in the early 20s which had a sound prologue that's just like the beginning of Love Me Tonight. It was the characters were slowly got up in the morning and they did this live on stage. So it wasn't quite as complicated. Mm. I haven't seen a score, so I don't know how complicated it was. We just have his description of it, which was no doubt colored at that point by having done the one in Love Me Tonight. But there'd be one sound associated with a broom and another sound associated with somebody opening the blinds and the sounds accumulated on stage as more and more people gathered on the streets of the town in the morning. But what's amazing about the Love Me Tonight opening is it's actually a percussion score, which is very, very complicated. And I can send you the figure in my book. Sure. It's a little bit hard to describe because you have three different pitch levels. Mm -hmm. You have rhythmic effects of the topmost, the bottom. The bottom notes are the downbeats, boom, boom, boom. And then they add in more and more complicated beats on top of that for higher sounding effects and it gets more and more syncopated and weird. And then you get music coming in. But for a long time, it's just sound. can score it. So that shows you how precise it was. That was probably done. The score was performed with a conductor mm. and the musicians doing the effects. And then for each little bit, they would time the action and 
photograph, the guy with the pickaxe, the guy mm. with the broom, whatever, would be filmed, sunk to playback. So that's how they did that. You can get almost click track effect. When you have a click track, though, what you can do is the musicians can watch the film. And if someone's already preset the clicks for them, they can just play them the score and be in time with what's going on on frame and not have to even look at mm. only the conductor looks at them and they could be precisely. But as I say, some film composers didn't like doing that. Alfred Newman never did it that way. He would have a cue to start, a cue to stop. Oh, interesting. He hated the click track. Yeah. Ah, I'll have to listen to some more of his scores again to see if there's a difference between him and like other composers of the era. Max Steiner is king of the click track. Huh. He didn't always use a click track, but he, would use it where he wanted precise sync. I would recommend Steiner versus Newman. <laughs> Warner Brothers versus Fox. I'll watch Quiet Man and the Searchers back to back to get the comparison. Quiet Man's one of my favorite scores in history. I think Newman's just, oh, it's so gorgeous. So with Love Me Tonight, that's also a good example, too, of the question of what was recorded direct sound, what is post-synced, or what is, you know, synced to playback. Is interesting because different scenes in that movie are clearly accomplished with different means. You have the poor Apache, which is, is evidenced by the production still, you know, direct recorded versus <laughs> Isn't It Romantic, which I should say, Isn't It Romantic might be my favorite musical scene of the 30s. <laughs> I think, well, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen every single time. <laughs> and yet it's a baton pass number, right? The song starts with Maurice. Isn't it romantic? Soon I will have found some girl that I adore. It gets passed along to a client at a shop. It gets passed along to a taxi driver. Isn't it romantic? It gets passed along to a writer. I think I'll take that down. It gets passed along to a company of soldiers. It's passed along to a Roma band. Gets passed along to Jeanette. We could go on and on about all the lovely thematic implications there. But the way it could not physically have been recorded on the set, right? Because you would have had to have an orchestra in a box traveling with you to all these remote locations. I guess remote somewhere in the Santa Monica Mountains. So you had two completely different ways of recording sound. And yet in the same film, they blend pretty seamlessly, which I find very impressive. I think Maurice is the part of it. I mean, Maurice was a vaudeville actor. And so... He has, even when he's singing to post-sync or whatever, he always has a sense of immediacy. Like you could imagine him performing in the French musicals and winking at the crowd and <laughs> playing up to them and pausing at the sexy bits and all that. And so the whole film, even though a lot of it's post-sync, it has that kind of intimacy because of his performance style, mm -hmm. which is I think very winning. I'm a fan. In this household, we love Maurice and Jeanette. <laughs> it was the Merry Widow that won us over a few years ago. We just binge watched all of his films or his pre-code musicals, let's say. And just, yeah, I'm completely in love with both of them. <laughs> <laughs> in an early email you sent, you mentioned to me the differences between Lubitsch and Mamoulian 
and you specified to me Lubitsch is better. <laughs> and this gets at something in my head, which is I have a bit of a cognitive dissonance when it comes to Love Me Tonight. Because it's one of my favorite musicals. It was instantly a musical where I watched it and I went, this is special. And yet I still miss the Lubitsch, right? Uh. There's still this finesse that isn't there. And feel free to interpret this any way you want. In your own view, how do you see the way that Lubitsch being clearly a genius or clearly at least a great director who had a certain feeling, how do you see that as translating into a film like Monte Carlo versus how Mamoulian translates his sensibility into a film like Love Me Tonight? Because to me, I watch Monte Carlo and I go, wow, Lubitsch is clearly an incredible director, but this is not my favorite of his. <laughs> you know, The Ray Widow, it might be my favorite film of his. And then something like Love Me Tonight, where I'm going, okay, I can see the shortcomings of this director, maybe. This feels simpler, but also I love it. It's a film where its pleasures are simple, but perfect in a weird way. What do you make of the difference between Mamoulian and Lubitsch? That's an interesting question. To me, there's no comparison between them as directors, okay? Just talking as an auteurist now. <laughs> and I would say that Lubitsch's musicals are not his best films, to my mind. I do love Monte Carlo very much. And we didn't talk about the always number, but the always number is one of the most witty ways mm. in which you can use and reuse a song. And that is the model, I think, for Isn't It Romantic, by the way. Yes. Isn't it romantic? This has the same quality where it's not just that it's a baton passing, but each time the baton passes, it changes genre, it becomes a march, becomes aroma, you know violin melody. It's actually becoming a different piece of music, even though the lyrics stay the same and the melody stays the same, but everything else changes. But that actually originates with the always number in Lubitsch. Mm. And I think the changes are wittier there because it services as bell chimes. It's heard literally as song, also as background score. It's just filmically very witty. So I would defend Monte Carlo, <laughs> but I would say the things that are really good in Love Me Tonight are Mamoulian. Maybe he goes one better than Lubitsch, but he's standing on Lubitsch's shoulders. Absolutely. But for me, the musicals are Lubitsch getting control of sound. Mm. And it's actually when he lets go of the musicals, like when he makes Trouble in Paradise, Design for Living, these perfectly timed movies that aren't musicals, that I think you can see the fruit of his musicals. That's where they really pay off. And I feel that way about his silent films, too. I mean, obviously, he wasn't making musicals, although some of them come from operetta plots. I guess my favorite of the silents are Lady Windermere's Fan, which is mm -hmm. one of the best films of the 20s, and my absolute favorite, which is The Marriage Circle. Mm. It has a musical comedy kind of plot with multiple couples circling around each other and suspecting each other of infidelity, but it doesn't have any music, but you don't need it. So yeah, I guess I think Lubitsch is a master of the medium of cinema in a way that in terms of its timing, in terms of editing, in terms of the way he organizes his sequences. I mean, and that's even true of Monte Carlo, where just as an opening, Monte Carlo begins with this marriage that doesn't happen. And it takes us 20 minutes to get to the real narrative meat yeah. of Love Me Tonight. So there's a kind of classicism about Lubitsch, which I guess Kristen would say, a classicism, which is just these are perfectly streamlined, beautiful Art Deco 
30s movies. You know? mm-hmm. It's interesting you mentioned Marriage Circle. I definitely warmed up to its remake <laughs> One Hour with You hugely in the process of doing the season. And yet there's this texture to his rhythm that I have a hard time describing where no matter what is happening, if you're watching one of his successful films, which is most of them at this point, you have this confidence that the next cut is going to be rhythmically perfect. (laughs) You have this feeling of, okay, I'm in almost like a state of suspension and that I'm not going to be let down. (laughs) Even if the script isn't up to snuff, even if it's Bluebeard's eighth wife, (laughs) it's still going to be rendered on screen with Lubitsch directing the performers in a certain way. I mean, he ran his performers through the scenes, right? He would basically do what we're told as filmmakers not to do, give line readings. Um, But that's because everything at the mercy of his rhythmic sensibilities, which were unmatched. Yeah, exactly. He cared about how the timings would work. And it's a very subtle art. Mm Mm-hmm. As anyone who's done stand-up comedy will tell you, a half a second can make a joke or wreck a joke. Mm -hmm. You might even call it a touch. (laughs) (laughs) You might. Can I just put in a plug for my favorite Maurice Chevalier number? Absolutely. Which is not in a Lubitsch movie. It's in Gigi. And it's the one, I'm glad I'm not young anymore. (laughs) As I'm getting older, this has become my theme song. But I've always loved it. And it's the perfect combination of it's Maurice when he's decaffeinated. (laughs) You know, when you see those over the top performances of the 30s and it's like he's putting over a song, but he's not trying so hard anymore. And the song is about that, not trying so hard anymore. Mm. And it has one of the great song lines, which is whenever love comes through the door forevermore is shorter than before. Slow down, Maurice. It's about tempo, too. Yeah. It's about slowing down and how that can be a good thing. If there's anything that Lubitsch taught me, it's that. (laughs) My favorite film ever is still Abel Gantz's Napoleon. (laughs) And as we know, that film has the fastest tempo you can imagine and at its best moments. Yeah. And Lubitsch, part of what I'm forever indebted to him for is that he taught me the value through his movies of the pause of the light touch the soft shoe (laughs) and i'll be forever grateful for that (laughs) amen thank you so much for coming on this show it's such an imposition on your time and thank you for donating the past 80 minutes of your life to this highly obscure podcast about this director i do it for certainly for you but even more for lupich (laughs) next week tanya goldman joins us to discuss trouble in paradise as well as william dieterle's jewel robbery Head over to ErnstCast.com for information as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes and our Discord server. How Would Lubitsch Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. Gloria Mercer was our dialogue editor for this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you happen to use. It helps other people find our podcast and therefore find Ernst Lubitsch. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. And even if love comes through the door, the can that goes on forevermore, forevermore is shorter than before. Oh, long love, that I'm not young.